We talked about the voters and whether the voters should be calling their members of Congress and so forth. And I think to some extent that's true. But realistically, they're getting the kids off to school. They're going to work. They're paying their bills. They're taking care of their homes and so forth. But what we're trying to tell the members of Congress is your constituents are not knocking on your door now, calling you and yelling at you. This is my number one issue, because frankly, it isn't. But you can be sure of this. When it happens and a bunch of them have died, Um, They will be knocking on your door. They will be calling you and they will say, why weren't you ready for this? You had plenty of advice, plenty of reports, and you didn't do the job. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. I don't usually open the podcast quoting myself. My comments were made back in 2017 at the National Press Club. Three years before that, I was one of six people named to the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. The commission was Bob Cadillac's idea. You've probably seen him every day with President Trump in the White House briefing. He's the Assistant Health and Human Services Secretary who oversees health preparedness and response. We call him the ASPR. For the past six years, our group has convened experts to help us create a strategy for biodefense. And the conclusion we unanimously drew, based on their testimony, was dire. It was not going to be a matter of if, but it was going to be a matter of when a pandemic like COVID would hit us. Since 2015, our commission issued reports and recommendations to the White House and to Capitol Hill that have not for the most part, been taken seriously. And I get it. In a way, it's human nature not to believe a catastrophe is inevitable until it arrives. I've been on the job here at Bio for 15 years. Before that, I served in Congress for 12. It wasn't that long ago, really, but it was a different political time in so many ways. It was before compromise became a dirty word in the body politic. Now that a global pandemic is upon us and we're arming ourselves with face masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and bacterial wipes just to go to the supermarket, I think it's important that you hear from the executive director and the co-chair of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Because we put politics aside, we listened to the experts, and we believed what the science was showing us. In today's episode, we're going to tell you about the work we did and the work that lies ahead, both to respond to this threat and to be ready for the next one. Because, unfortunately, COVID won't be the last time something like this happens. The world's eyes are opening to the very real threats that a modern industrial society faces. How we respond and who we choose to listen to will determine our collective future. Well, my next guest is Dr. Asha George. Uh, she's a former military intelligence officer, a decorated veteran of Operation Desert Storm, and one of the nation's foremost experts in public health security. Asha served as a subcommittee staff director on the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security. Before that, she studied at Johns Hopkins, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Harvard, and the University of Hawaii. 
For the last six years, she's been the executive director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, on which I serve, and she has been a great teacher to me in all of that service. And Asha, welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks so much. You are an Operation Desert Storm veteran, and I've heard that that experience impacted your work in biodefense and now on COVID-19. So tell us about that. Well, I was a military intelligence officer when I was on active duty in the military and had deployed to Desert Shield and was there still for Desert Storm. And as you may recall, we were dealing with a lot of Scud missile attacks from Iraq. As a military intelligence officer, I can tell you that we knew then that uh, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi military had weaponized anthrax and had loaded it into missiles. We just didn't know whether those missiles were going to come our way or not. But we had to be prepared for that. So we took the anthrax vaccine that was under uh, EUA uh, from the FDA and uh, had not been particularly well tested uh, at the time, but we were given the vaccine and uh, told that it was sort of pseudo-voluntary to take them. And then, uh, you know, dealing with the scud attacks, increasingly we were wearing more... Did you take the injection? I did. I did. Um, And at the time it was a a three-part series. So by the time we were getting the scud attacks, I think I had taken two. Um, Then... Uh, we were we were experiencing increasing scud missile attacks, uh, and as those were going on and increasing in frequency, we were having to wear more and more of our chemical pro- protective overgarments um, until we got to the point where, if we heard a scud missile was coming, we were putting on everything, top to bottom. Uh, including masks and gloves and and uh, just c- covering up the entire body. So I was outside one day, actually one evening, and uh, we, we got a Scud missile uh, warning. And after telling my troops, hey, go put on all your stuff uh, and take cover, I was outside checking to make sure they had done that. And I saw a Patriot and a Scud missile collide, and I saw the pieces coming down out of the sky. And in that few seconds uh, time period, I thought to myself, if there's a nuclear weapon in that missile, I'm toast because I'm outside. But even if I were behind some sandbags, that's not going to help. If there's a chemical weapon in that, I'm, I might do okay. I think I've got a good seal on my mask. I think I've put on my equipment uh, properly. Uh, but if there's a biological in there, if it's anthrax or something else, I, I don't know if I'm okay. And then I also thought, I took the vaccine, but I didn't finish the series. I haven't gotten the third piece. And it's under EUA. Tell, say, say what an EUA is. Uh, it's an emergency use authorization uh, provided by the FDA for new things that we need in an emergency that just haven't had a chance to you know, get um, cleared by the FDA properly. So I have to tell you, Jim, that experience, uh, you know, of course, obviously I survived it uh, and went on my way that night. But what I thought subsequently and what I still reflect on to this day is that I remember how that felt to be standing out there knowing that 
it was very possible that there was a disease in the environment, and I didn't know. I didn't know if my mask was going to work. I didn't know if the vaccine was sufficient. I didn't know if I was too close or too far from the source of that disease. Uh, I, I didn't know. And I have to tell you, I wasn't particularly scared. Um, I was just more anxious about it. And I, I decided then... And when I went on to work for my, uh, go to get my doctorate, uh, and then subsequently working in, in biodefense, I just don't want anybody else to have to feel that way, to not know. Uh, it's one thing to fight an enemy, and even to fight an unseen enemy, but it's another thing to not know whether the things that are supposed to protect you are going to work or not. So that's my that's my experience, and I've been working ever since to to see what I can do about helping our citizens in particular not feel that way. Well, nothing like actually being in their proverbial shoes to to have empathy for when that happens to someone else. So that's a, a, a sort of a bioterror um, event. Um, what we've been working on is not only those, but of course the pandemic, which I'm going to talk about now. And COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease that affects public health. So Tell us what that means and why this pandemic was predictable and what we could have planned in advance. Right. So zoonotic diseases, just at the very basis of it, is uh, they are diseases that arise in animals and then jump to spread to human beings. They can also technically be uh, diseases that arise in human beings and then spread back to animals. And they can be diseases that just go back and forth and back and forth. But generally, when we talk about zoonotic diseases, we're talking about those that arise in animals and then move to the human population. Um, in terms of this particular uh, pandemic, this particular disease, much of it really was predictable. We had SARS uh, really not that long ago. We had SARS, which was a coronavirus. We had MERS, which was a coronavirus. Somewhere in there, we had SARS again. Uh, MERS is still floating around somewhere. And we constantly deal with coronaviruses anyway. They are what are responsible for what we know as, you know, the common cold. So we should have known, knowing what we do about viruses anyway in general, never mind coronaviruses specifically, we should have known that the coronavirus was going to mutate and that it was going to uh, do what viruses do, mutate enough to infect people, uh, spread broadly, uh, be able to replicate, and not really kill as many of the hosts as a very highly pathogenic virus could, like Ebola. Ebola is not as successful as coronavirus. Uh, so all of this was, you know, perfectly predictable. And and frankly, you know, if we're looking at uh, whether or not we could have predicted a pandemic or this pandemic, it is hard to say. You know, we haven't gotten as far with science as we would like to be able to track a mutation and then immediately say, OK, so this is going to cause a pandemic. But what we can do and what we should have done was looked at the worst case scenario we should have looked at what was happening in China when we started finding out about it. We should have applied the same situations here in the United States, just, you know, esoterically. 
and asked ourselves, well, what does this look like here in the United States? If it shows up here, knowing what we know about the spread of it, how is it going to affect the United States? How is it going to move throughout the United States? These are all things that we we know how to do, that the scientific community knows how to do, that the public health community knows how to do, and that the government knows how to do, uh, but we didn't. Well, it's interesting. You said we should have known, and I, I hate to say this, but we did know. And by we, I mean the the members on the on the bipartisan biodefense commission. We put out a biodefense blueprint, and uh, we made a whole set of recommendations. One of the ones that I was just going back and reading about yesterday was the notion that we should forward deploy uh, much of the um, uh, the the personal protection equipment and the and the ventilators uh, from the national stockpile up into uh, highly urban cities that are ready to use them. So we did know a lot. We tried to uh, convince administrations and congresses that they needed to take action. And uh, unfortunately, uh, while they took some, um, they didn't take uh, as many as they should have. So back to what you've just said about uh, China and what we should have done Let's be specific. So what do you think the federal government should have done as soon as it became clear? And, and you know, it's also clear that China was a bad player in that it, it wasted at least six days or so um, when it should have notified the world what was going on. But 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 the, from the earliest time that we knew that something that this pandemic was going on, or at least the, the, the outbreak in China, what are this, some of the specific steps that, that you think we should have taken? Well, first of all, we did have some time. We we had some advance notice, and we should have taken advantage of that advance notice. Even if we had not, uh, and we had not, forward deployed much of the strategic national stockpile, we should have, A, taken a look at what the requirements were for treating patients uh, that were coming down with COVID-19 disease in China. And we should have looked at our stockpile and we should have immediately started figuring out what we needed out of that and what we needed out of the, you know, the, the, the available equipment and medicines and uh, essential medical supplies that we have in the private sector. And we should have started moving all of that immediately, at least to the major urban centers, if not more broadly throughout the United States. We should have alerted the private sector much earlier to say, listen, we're going to need a huge surge in what you can provide. So go ahead and prepare for that. We should have reoriented our biosurveillance systems to be able to pick up on what, uh, you know, what started in China as pneumonia of unknown origin. We might not have been able to pick up COVID-19 itself, but we could have picked up pneumonia. We report pneumonia all the time, but we don't do it comprehensively and we don't do it throughout the United States. We could have turned those systems uh, on. I think also we should have been looking at what the rest of the world was doing, not just China. Uh, Germany, for example, came up with a diagnostic test very, very early. And it's a good test. And it's the test the WHO uses. We didn't even evaluate that test uh, for a very, very long time. And to this day, I'm not sure why we don't use that test. 
but, you know, we have to trust that the CDC knows what it's doing. And for whatever reason, we decided not to use it. That said, what I'm really trying to say is that we should have been taking advantage of everything that was going on in the world, in the world. Uh, all of the diagnostics and all of the research and all of the activity that was being directed towards uh, what was happening in China and evaluated it and decided with the weeks that we had uh, in terms of advance notice, you know, as to what we were going to apply here and use here in the United States. There's no reason we had to start from scratch with so many different things. Many of the recommendations that we have could very easily have been taken up by the federal government, even at that late date. It could be taken up now. Um, But uh, in order to do that, you have to have a plan. You have to be aware of what plans other people have put out. And you have to be be willing to set aside some time to do that. And I know that's that's incredibly difficult to do in the middle of a response. But Jim, what we're doing now is we're trying to plan and prepare and respond and now apparently recover all at the same time. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think it's interesting that the, um, uh, the president put the vice president in charge of the response. Of course, it was five years ago that we suggested that the vice president would be the best person to deal with biodefense. Um, but we meant uh, then that the vice president should handle all of the planning and the preparation for any potential forthcoming biodefense need. And um, at, at least at least uh, the, the administration uh, saw after the fact that, that that's what they needed to do. But you, you've been doing this since for like 15 years. And you were around when the um, the, the Bush administration's uh, Bush administration was um, p- planning for influenza preparedness. Um, what what was what was uh, about the what the Bush administration's planning efforts in two thousand and five and two thousand and six that we should be applying to COVID nineteen right now? Well, the Bush administration went out of its way to develop a very robust implementation plan. Uh, the, the national strategy for pandemic influenza at the time was a 12-page document in 20-point font that many people made fun of them for. But it was streamlined, and it should have been, because they follow that up with an implementation plan that, as I said, was very robust. It was hundreds of pages long, and it had thousands of tasks within it, addressing the entire federal government, in addressing state local, tribal, and territorial requirements, and the private sector. Now, if, we're, if we fast forward to today, we have a national biodefense strategy that was released in 2018 uh, in keeping with our third recommendation for such a strategy, and it included an implementation plan, but it was not robust. It was minimal at best. Uh, I think that what the f- federal government could do right now is go back and take a look at that other implementation plan, and they could see how much of it applies now. It doesn't have to be about influenza. Pandemics are pandemics. Um, Some of this is just disease agnostic. But I also think that uh, you just brought up the point of the vice president. We recommended that the vice president be put in charge of the biodefense enterprise permanently as a permanent Uh, institutional requirement for the office of the vice president, because there are so many departments and agencies that have responsibilities for biodefense. 
and that whether they want to or not have responsibilities during COVID-19. I think that the vice president has to exert some more uh, control here and uh, have the White House staff determine what needs to be done, what the federal government needs to do, and then go ahead and start holding these people accountable for what they need to do. Again, they don't have to start from scratch. They can pull from those old strategies. They can pull from our reports uh, and, and other pieces of advice that are still coming out right now. But I think that they have to they have to get a plan down in place. They have to have something down on paper uh, that they can hold everybody accountable to. And they have to stop sort of scrambling hither and yon. Uh, addressing every little thing about COVID-19 that happens to pop up before them. You mentioned the, the World Health Organization. And um, as we know, just a couple of days ago, President Trump announced that the United States was, wasn't going to fund the World Health Organization anymore. At least they were going to um, withhold payment for a while. Um, what do you think the implications of that decision are? I think the implications are pretty dire, and they're not particularly great for the United States. It's not just about WHO and its finances, and it's not even just about the rest of the world. It, it, it's about us here, too, in the United States. The United States provi- provides, I believe, 22%, 23% of the funding that goes to WHO. So if you pull 22 23% of funding out of what uh, what they're trying to do right now, you're going to greatly hobble the response effort that is occurring. Uh, no matter how badly you think it's going, it's going to be just that much worse if you take uh, a bunch of money out of it, number one. Number two, we benefit from being part of the WHO, uh, supporting the World Health Organization, if only because we need the data that they're collecting. WHO does not have people in every little part of every country throughout the world. Um, They depend on all of these different countries to provide information to them. This is information that we would not get in any other way if we didn't have the World Health Organization. We are not going to develop our own uh, surveillance uh, apparatus the way the World Health Organization has done it. it. Even if we wanted to, Jim, it would cost far more than our dues to the World Health Organization. But I also think that we have to accept our role in the world as a leader, a leader in many, if not all things. And people are looking to, other countries are looking to the United States to see what it's doing and uh, thinking about following in the same path because they think we know what we're doing and we have our acts together and we've thought through our our various actions. Um, to, To take this step is going to cause a ripple effect. And I believe it's going to cause other countries to say, well, you know, if, if the United States isn't going to provide its dues, then we're not going to either. Now, suddenly you're talking about uh, a greatly, greatly hobbled World Health Organization. What if, you know, they lose 50% of their funding? They're not going to be able to respond to or even identify outbreaks like COVID-19. They're not going to be able to communicate that information to folks. And, you know, I think that that many people don't understand what the World Health Organization does, but it's similar to what we have here 
in the United States with our Department of Health and Human Services. The entire Department of Health and Human Services here does not respond to every outbreak that occurs here in the United States. We have entities within HHS that do that. Similarly, the World Health Organization does not respond. Um, it doesn't use its entirety to respond to everything that happens throughout the world. They have small entities like, like the Global Outbreak and Response Network, GORN, that pull together teams and they go out and investigate outbreaks on behalf of the rest of the world. Without the funding and without the support that we, the United States and other countries provide, they're not going to be able to do that. If we can't get them out, then then how are we going to find out about anything? Won't we be in a worse position the next time an outbreak occurs and becomes an pan- epidemic and then a pandemic? There's no wall around the U.S. that's going to keep this virus out. So if, if the WHO isn't busy about uh, helping the, the other nations of the world um, uh, deal with this pandemic, our economy is going to suffer, our, our citizens won't be able to travel and so it's, um, it's, it's not just about the next one, it's about this one. I want to ask you one more question, because if you remember uh, back in our first report, we started out with a, a hypothetical hearing in which we said um, we imagined a hearing where the House and the Senate were having a joint hearing and they were bringing forward witnesses from the administration after a, a, a biodefense event saying, why didn't we, why weren't you not prepared for this? Why didn't we... Um, why, why weren't we ready for this event? And, um, and our, our plea to the administration and the Congress for these many years has been, don't wait until after the event to hold that hearing. Hold the hearings now. Hold the hearings before. Make sure, ask questions about how, we, how prepared we are. And they didn't do that. Um, but now um, the question is, what's going to happen afterwards? And do you think there will be some sort of a commission or a joint committee, a special committee, that will um, uh, take a look in the aftermath of all of this and uh, and begin to support um, uh, the kind of efforts that need to do and and do you think our our biodefense bipartisan biodefense commission will have a role to play there? I definitely think that Congress is going to have to take a look whether they they want to or not. They're they're bandying about a number of ideas right now. And Jim, as you know, as a former representative, there are a number of options. One is to have a dedicated commission, and it should be a bipartisan commission. Another would be to have the Oversight and Reform Committee on the House side or uh, the Senate uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs uh, Committee on the Senate side uh, undertake such an investigation, uh, uh, such a look-see. I, I think that... Whatever the choice that is made, it has to be supported in a bipartisan way, and it has to be a bicameral sort of setup. I do think that our commission uh, has a role to play. We have done a lot of this work already. We did a lot of this analysis already. I'm not saying that our report and our efforts have been 100% comprehensive, but we can at least save Congress some time. I think some of our members should actually be part of that commission uh, if they have one. Um, And if not, well, we should be testifying. We should be providing as much information as we can uh, because I think that we don't have time. We don't have time, Jim, to, to wait around and take 
months and years to do the analysis of what happened with COVID-19 and then finally get around to making changes to, to statute and to government. We have to treat this with even more urgency than we did after 9-11, because the next biological event could very well happen now. Well, I think that's right. And it just, it just occurred to me a couple of days ago that, wow, there's, there's nothing about this pandemic that makes it any less likely that there'll be another one, as you said, now. I mean, some animal could intersect with some, uh, in a zoonotic way, as you said, uh, with a human being any place in the world, and this could start all over again. And um, it's not like we get to say, "Wish, okay, well, that's over with. Now we don't have to worry about it again. Um, it could, as you say, it could happen any other day. So usually the, um, the, the Congress is very good at locking the barn doors after the horses are gone. I'm afraid that's what we begged them not to do, but they did this time. Um, but hopefully lessons will be learned uh, and we will be more prepared. And uh, thank you for your service in, in helping us be prepared. Uh, and your service to the country for a very long time. And thanks for being with us. Thank you. Well, it is such a pleasure to be joined today by my friend and colleague, Joe Lieberman, four-term senator from the great state of Connecticut, and uh, I guess a few hanging chads short of becoming the vice president back in 2000. Does it seem like it was 20 years ago, Joe? Uh, It doesn't, really. I can uh, I can get right back into the thrill of being selected by Al Gore to running uh, to uh, thinking we had won an election night and then that dreadful uh, period of 36 days until uh, it all ended uh, with the recount. But uh, it was I, I always say to people it was it was really the greatest honor and opportunity of my life uh, until election night. After that, it was not, it was not so good, but. Uh, anyway, it doesn't seem like the 20 years. It's true. Mm. Well, for the last six years, Joe has been my fellow commissioner on the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you at the risk of having this be a big uh, uh, hug, podcast hug. I've, I've always really had the greatest respect for you and affection, but uh, your years uh, in Congress as uh, the kind of Republican and, frankly, the kind of Democrat we don't see much anymore, which was centrist in the sense of willing to come to the middle to talk to people, listen, compromise, and actually get some good things done. And it's been a a welcome treat, a kind of bonus to uh, get to work with you on this commission and and really really to benefit from all you've learned in your time uh, leading the bio organization. So great to be with you. So we have served uh, for since ni- 2014 on this um, bipartisan commission, and it's in our commission meeting over the years, you've been really outspoken about pandemic preparedness, because we were looking at both pandemic and bioterror. And I know that part of that concern was um, formed by your own family history. So what happened in the Spanish flu of 1918 yeah. um, with regard to your family? Yeah, well, you know, um, it may have operated at a subconscious level, but honestly, as we went on in our work, um, more than that. Uh, so, so the story is that my uh, my father's mother was an immigrant to this country from uh, Poland, uh, came to New York, and um, she met a man who was also from Poland, but had first gone to 
Canada and then come down to the U.S. and met him in New York. They got married, and uh, my father was born in 1915. Uh, and uh, in uh, 1918, uh, she died in the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. Uh, really quite um, stunning, and and I, I guess I I knew that. And I always felt a kind of deprivation because she sounded like a fascinating, wonderful woman, very spirited, politically active in, in a way. It's part, of, it's part of why she came to America, because I later learned from others, because she was anti-Czarist, and uh, they were afraid that the Czarist government was going uh, to arrest her. Uh, but anyway, my dad... Um, of course, he had really no memories of her. He was less than three years old when she died. It had a big effect on his life. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if I told this story when we were together in the commission. But my dad, my father's father, uh, put him into an orphanage uh, where he stayed for seven years. Um, felt he couldn't take care of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were orphanages, interestingly, that were set up. Uh, this were mostly Jewish. Uh, this orphanage, but set up to deal with. Uh, kids of uh, families that have been dislocated uh, by by the waves of immigration, but all of a sudden they were dealing with children left as uh, orphans um, by the flu epidemic. My dad was there for seven years and um, came out. It definitely affected his personality, but it was, he was remarkably sort of positive and not complaining about it anyway. Um, uh, so that that was always he was deprived of his mother. I was deprived of this woman who I had remarkable, uh, you might say, fantasies about, about what what a force she might have been if she had lived in American life, because she was very politically concerned. I always thought maybe that was the gene I got that took me into politics. The estimates are that at least 50 million people were killed worldwide by the uh, 1918 flu, and it could be as many as 100 million. And what always worried me is that uh, we're moving around so much more now. Oh, God knows what might happen um, if this if we had another pandemic. But the other factor is that we're so much more technologically, um, biologically, biotechnologically, and pharmaceutically advanced that we have the uh, ability to and uh, the 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 experience to know that as we're doing now, uh, social distancing can help. Uh, that uh, to to limit the impact of this, and with you know, it sure looks like as devastating as the numbers are. Uh, thank God we're going to be nowhere near the suffering that occurred in 1918. All the way back in October of 2015, we put out the National Blueprint for Biodefense. So that was almost five years ago. Right. And we said in the preface, the United States is underprepared for biological threats because nature itself via emerging infectious diseases threaten us. And we said things like the leadership should be institutionalized at the White House with the vice president. That was to prepare in case, you know, for when this happens. We said that the Department of Health and Human Services should look at the personal protection equipment requirements, the gowns and the masks and the gloves and so forth, and the ventilators. We said that that the federal government, the Medicare program, should incentivize hospitals to um, prepare for events and reimburse them for stockpiling equipment. We said we should have a stratified hospital system so we know this hospital is going to be most highly um, prepared for pathological infectious diseases, and that'll be the, the hospital first resort, and then we'll have second resort, and third resort. And then we said 
I think most tellingly that we should forward deploy equipment from the national stockpile to the high threat urban cities. And, and that meant taking things like ventilators and all of this equipment and stockpiling it in places like New York City uh, and elsewhere. So um, when this happened, we'd be ready. So I guess I, I, I hate to, it's just not about finger pointing, but um, I've never felt more awful about being so right. Yeah, I agree. And uh, look, uh, just to say a word, I've been very proud to be involved in this uh, commission. And uh, let's sort of give a quick, quick history that this was the brainchild of a man named Bob Cadlick, who's now an assistant secretary of uh, Health and Human Services. He had been uh, working in the National Security Council in part on um, uh, biodefense, as we call it, which means defense to not only bioterrorism, but infectious disease um, outbreaks. And, uh, you know, he put the commission together. It's small, only six of us. Uh, Tom Ridge and I co-chairs and, and yourself, Jim, and uh, uh, Ken uh, Weinstein, who was uh, had been in the White House as Homeland Security Advisor to President Bush 43, also had been a U.S. attorney, and on the Democratic side, uh, Tom Daschle, the former leader of the Senate, originally Donna Shalala, former uh, secretary, a uh, member of the cabinet herself, but also president of the University of Miami, now a member of Congress, went off, and we were very fortunate to replace her with Lisa Monaco, who had been the Homeland Security Advisor uh, in, in the Obama White House. So we've got a great group of people. We've, we are genuinely bipartisan. We've walked, worked really across party lines. So I, I've had that same feeling. You don't want to say we were right, um, but we were right. And it's not, frankly, that we were geniuses or prophets, but we, we went to the experts and um, studied and listened. And it's just so clear that something bad was going to happen eventually when we didn't know. Um, uh, in terms of a, 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 a naturally occurring biological attack, well, you might say, which would be an infectious disease uh, outbreak, and um, that, we, that we had to get ready for it. And, you know, as I look back, I have uh, two, two feelings about this. One is we worked pretty hard in Congress and with the administrations uh, after we issued our report in 2015, a lot of our basic ideas were actually put into law as standards, not all of them. In um, 2018, President Trump um, followed through on one of our uh, big suggestions and issued a national biodefense strategy. But uh, as you look back, sadly, um, very few of our recommendations, which are on the books, you might say, now, law and regulation were implemented, and very few of them were funded. And so when this COVID-19 uh, hit, uh, all those things that you mentioned that we recommended, we just, they hadn't been done. And um, uh, and we in the middle of the outbreak, we had a rush to get it done. I mean, it got to be, you sort of wished that we, we had, we had we had been ready. And yeah, no, uh, 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 that was one of the most uh, important things I think we did in our report. And we did it. Remember, we talked about how, we don't want this, this to be another blah, blah, blah report with good recommendations that goes on a shelf. But how do we get people to feel what we're feeling that this really is going to happen? Uh, a dreadful uh, uh, viral or flu epidemic pandemic. 
And I forgot who, but somebody came up with the idea of just to, to create this scenario after the fact with a hearing happening. And I, I thought it was galvanizing. Incidentally, uh, I'm sure in the modern age, anybody listening will figure this out. But our full report, which is not a monster and it's easily readable, uh, can be found on, on our website. It said it got to be oh, a little bit like Pearl Harbor, that after Pearl Harbor, we sort of rushed, energized, activated the country to get ready for it, to get involved in World War II. And I hope one of the things we take away from this is um, the old ounce of prevention. It's human nature uh, not to want to deal with uh, crises until they come, push them off, they're bad news. And frankly, in government, particularly particularly a government that is as divided along party lines as ours is now, it's not good at... um, uh, dealing with problems preemptively, um, but too often uh, uh, doesn't act until there's a genuine crisis or catastrophe. Well, I think it was Winston Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I have here on my desk at home, you know, I keep this, it's a little piece of metal that somebody gave me, and it's a Churchill quote, never, never, never quit. So mm-hmm. that, uh, that, I mean, right now, as we're all going through this really strange and in many ways stressful period and, and devastating for people who are losing loved ones, uh, you know, we, we have to soldier on. And uh, those words, and we will, I'm sure, uh, and get to the other side. There's one thing that shouldn't be partisan at something like this, although I have to say it was just terribly shocking to me to read earlier in this in this crisis that um, I saw a, a poll that said something like 68% of Democrats thought that uh, someone they knew would get the virus and large percentages of Democrats were uh, practicing social distancing and staying home and so forth. And about half that uh, number of Republicans thought so. So the, so the uh, unfortunately, the, the Hannity approach and the Fox yeah. News approach and so forth, which just really had a devastating effect on, on, on um, minimizing what um, was obvious to a lot of us was going to be something awful. So um, I know you're an optimist by nature and a great believer in the American spirit and our problem-solving capacity. So um, let's, let's leave our listeners here on a hopeful note. Right. How do you think we're going to come together and get through this? This is a test, and it's a test at a time, uh, as the numbers you just recited suggest, when we're more divided than we've been for a long time, certainly at the level of the public dialogue, which is dominated both by political leaders and media personalities who are divisive and sort of feed off it, and, and too often the parts of the public do as well. But there's no question... Uh, that on every poll I've seen, there's still the, the great middle is still out there, and uh, it it wants uh, people in Washington uh, to work together, just like people in our neighborhoods and communities uh, do to get something done. Uh, one of the numbers that always strikes me is if you ask people on polls, um, do you want your member of Congress or president to stick absolutely to everything they promised they would do in the campaign, or do you want them to uh, be prepared to compromise to get something done. And uh, the the second choice always gets about two-thirds support for the American people. So what what's – but there is a, a pulling together now underneath all this. First of all, generally speaking, 
notwithstanding all the tension and the, the, the coarsening of public dialogue since you and I were in, basically the president and Congress have worked together. Um, part of and a kind of advantage of this president is that he's so in many ways non-ideological and about something like this. Uh, he just uh, he he uh, okay maybe he he didn't act quickly enough at the beginning or broadly enough at the beginning, but I think he's accepted a lot of uh, answers that would normally have been uh, uh, programmatic answers would normally be thought to be um, uh, more democratic than Republican. But but I will tell you, and this happens in New York now where we live, near two of our kids, and and. Um, uh, it's happening all around the country. 7 p.m. every night, you open the window, you go out on the terrace or you go out on the street. People are out there cheering, clapping, uh, setting off fireworks. Uh, and what is it? It's become the daily time to say thank you to the first responders, the, the health care workers and all the rest. But really, it's something else. It's that we're reaching out to each other. We're, we're saying we're here. We're together. We get it. And um, I also think that um, all this incredible uh, capability we have in our country, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking now of exactly what you have uh, been deeply involved in with the last chapter of your, uh, the most recent chapter of your life, which is biotechnology. Um, we're going to have some big breakthroughs to, uh, to, to protect us. Um, maybe we're going to come out of this understanding how much we really depend on each other, and uh, we're in it together. And and I I think hopefully we're going to be stronger. I know everybody says we're going to be spending more time on Zoom and uh, uh, and other ways of working unconventionally. Maybe I think people still want to see people uh, in person, and I and I know people want to go back to the restaurants and the bars. So hopefully that'll happen sooner than later. Well, listen, you, you talked about people standing on the back balconies and saying thank you. I want to say thank you to you, Senator, for so many years of, of, co of commitment and service to our country, um, including in this commission in which you and I both continue to serve. Um, and uh, thank you also for recognizing the work that our companies do. We, uh, we will develop therapeutics uh, relatively soon to Good. help do things like prevent the terrible um, uh, in, inflammation of the lungs that causes people not to be able to breathe and right. well and to end up on, on ventilators and um, and we will create antivirals that will stop the virus from from replicating once it gets into the body um, and then we will develop vaccines and it will it will be when that happens that we can hopefully put this terrible virus um, behind us and then thankfully hopefully prepare for the next one when because next time you and i go up on the hill or into the white house and say there's another one coming thank you for for everything really uh, sure, well, sure. We, you know we we uh, our industry has been under such attack for a lot of reasons we don't have time to go into now yeah but i do hope i do hope that uh, as people recognize that the, the only thing that stands between them and uh and either death from this from this uh virus or the total collapse of the economy is the biotechnology industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know some politicians take great pleasure for some reason, think it's popular to attack biotechnology industry, pharmaceutical industry, but um, why are we all living longer? Now, a little bit of it is that we're living smarter, we're exercising, we're watching what we eat, but it's the result of what those industries have given us. And uh, 
I don't know if you know, I've noticed a strange thing that the, that little, I, I, about a year ago, I actually went out and bought a pillbox so I could organize how many pills I take <laughs> every day. Now, there's still a lot of vitamins. I'm a big vitamin believer, but honestly, um, modern uh, uh Pharmaceutical biotechnological medicine is uh, why we're living longer. So uh, you can. <laughs> I give you another Churchill. I love it. It, it. it was about free enterprise, but but you could apply it to the biotechnology industry. He said some people look at free enterprise as a cow to be a cow to be milked uh, dry. He said I uh, look at it as a strong horse to pull the wagon that we're all on. And um, I think that's a good metaphor for the biotech industry as well. Senator, stay safe and you too, and all Jim. the best to to you and your loved ones. Thank you, my friend. Take care. A great quote from a great man who taught us a lot about leadership in a crisis. Churchill also said that politics is more dangerous than war, for in war you are only killed once. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of Heroes in Lab Coats, please visit iambio.org. On the next episode, we're going to discover exactly where COVID-19 originated in my conversation with one of the world's leading authorities on zoonotic disease transmission. Three out of four of all infectious diseases in humans come from animals. And yes, this one came from Chinese bats. How can respecting natural habitats and monitoring infectious disease hotspots around the world prevent the next pandemic? We'll find out on Thursday's episode of I Am Bio.